0: Hello, and welcome to Specscast, a podcast about the science and technology of space exploration. My name is Phil, and I'll be your host today alongside TJ. Hello. Today we are speaking with the communications lead for Copenhagen Suborbitals, Mads Wilson. Hello. Specscast is brought to you by RIT Space Exploration, also known as Specs, a student faculty research group at the Rochester Institute of Technology. On this podcast, we delve into the technologies that make space exploration possible. You can learn more about Specs and Specscast at our website specs.rit.edu. hi Matt how are you today hi I'm fine so uh, tell us about yourself what is your background and what do you do with Copenhagen suborbitals
1: yeah so uh, my name is mass Wilson and I have a degree in physics and computer science and uh, in my civilian life if you can say that I'm uh, I'm working as an IT consultant I have been in the the advertising business for for many years uh, in the sort of the technical side of of advertising. I I finished my my degree uh, just after 2000 and as you might know uh, a lot of us who could just do any kind of programming was sucked into uh, to businesses uh, after that because everyone was screaming after people who could uh, could program. So so that's kind of where I uh, where I ended up. And then, uh, along the way, I, I heard of this uh, project locally, not very far from where I work and live, uh, where where these guys were, were trying to be the first amateurs in the world to build a rocket to put a man in space. And I have always been fascinated with space. And I have also also been, been tingling with, uh, with electronics at home. And I was very eager to find a project where, you know, the stuff that I was playing with at home actually could be used for something. So I uh, I simply one day, I took my car and I drove out there and said, hey, is there something I can do to help? And uh, they have been stuck with me ever since.
2: Wonderful. So Copenhagen Suborbitals is trying to launch a person past the Carmen line. Can you tell us a bit about the speaker rocket that uh, Copenhagen Suborbitals is developing?
1: Well, uh, yes and no. I mean, it's still a work in progress. Contrary to to others, a lot of the stuff we do is designing as we go along. Uh, of course, we we have the overall uh, layout and we know how the rocket will be in in general terms. But much of the things that we are building, we are, we're designing that that as we go along. But it will be uh, between fifteen and seventeen meters tall, one meter in diameter, and it will feature a ho uh, or hundred uh, 100, uh, and twenty kilonewton. Main engine, gim- g- gimbal controlled, propelled by liquid oxygen and alcohol, ethanol, uh, and controlled by the same uh, guidance system uh, and uh, computer system as we use on the uh, on the Nexus rockets. And really, the two Nexo rockets—one we flew in in 16, and the one we will be flying this year—are technology demonstrators for the uh, for the speaker ro- speaker rocket. We have we have built the entire computer system and all the communication systems in such a way that they can be used directly on the next rocket, which is uh, which is one of the reasons why we are building the small next year rockets because because all of the all of the um, the technology. Apart from the engine itself will be the same on the speaker. Rocket.
0: What's the difference between uh Speaker and Nexu? Speaker being the one that will carry a man, Nexu
1: being your tech demo. Ne- yeah, Nexu is a very small uh, uh rocket, uh compared to, to Speaker. Uh Nexu is, is only thirty centimeters in diameter and uh, and just about above, above uh, five meters tall. So it's 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 a very small rocket and it, it won't go very high up, we expect uh, we expect then the Nexo 2 to go to uh, between 10 and 15 kilometers, but it features all the same systems. And dif- the difference between Nexo 1 and Nexo 2 is that Nexo 2 has a full full uh, dynamic pressure regulating system, which is also the same system that will be used on the, on the speaker rockets.
2: So, can you tell a little bit more about this dynamic pressure system?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, I don't know if you know, but, but uh, basically, there are two ways to feed the propellant into the uh into the engine in a in a in a liquid, in a bi liquid rocket, right? Uh what you what you want is you want fuel and oxidizer to come into the engine at a certain ratio with a certain amount per second. And and there are two ways you can do that. Either you can do it by pressurizing the tanks. So that when the gas bubble inside the tank expands, it will push out the uh, the liquid and and, and and push it into the engine, just just like you would do with a, basically with a water rocket. It's the same. It's the same principle. Yeah, that, that's uh, that's one way to do it. Uh, the other way to do it is to use a turbo pump. And obviously, a turbo pump is the way to go because uh, it will make the entire rocket a lot lighter. When you're using a turbo pump, you can just suck the, uh, the propellants from the tanks and control of the, the feeding pressure to the engine. And the tanks don't need to sustain more than a couple of bars of overpressure uh, because it's the rocket that, uh, sorry, the um, it's the pump that creates the pressure into the, uh, to the engine. Whereas when you're using, uh, when you're working with pressurized tanks, you need tanks that can that can uh, uh, that can can, can handle a, a pressure of, for example, 25 or 30 bars, because that's the overpressure you need to uh, to push down the uh, the propellant into the into the engine. So uh, the next one rocket was a simple a simple uh, pressurized tank rocket, where we just fill up each tank two thirds with uh, with propellants, we, then we pressurize. The, the 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 remaining uh, one third with uh, helium gas, and then once the valves are opened, then the helium expands, and then the the fuel and oxidizer are pushed into the engine. But that is uh, that that expansion curve you get from that is um, is a, is a, is an adiabatic exp- expansion curve. Uh, it it will only at one point on the entire uh, expansion give you the optimal amount of fuel per second into the engine. So it'll be either very bad, uh sorry, very much too high or very much too low pressure, right? Uh, uh, which also uh, is something that we saw on the next One rocket. And wh- it, it's one of the reasons why we didn't go as high as we expected on that uh, rocket. Uh, but you can overcome that by adding a dynamic pressure regula- regulating system, which is basically high-pressure tank, in our case a 350 bar helium tank, and some uh, regulating valves, and those valves are, during the entire flight, putting or feeding uh, high-pressure helium gas into the tanks, so that we sustain the gas pressure in the tanks at about 25 bars during the entire flight, so that we get the optimum amount of fuel pushed into into the engine during the entire flight. So so it will it will do the same as a turbo pump just by using a dynamic uh, pressurization of the of the tanks during the flight. Exciting technology. Yeah, I mean it's uh, it's 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 quite it's quite common, it's been done a lot of times and in terms of of efficiency it's not a very good technology because uh, because you have both the extra weight of the high pressure tanks and you have the extra weight of the helium tank, right? But, uh, but in our, ca- our case, it's um, it's a simple way to make the engine perform as we want.
0: So uh, Copenhagen Suborbitals was founded back in 2008. And since then, you've launched four different rockets. My question for you is, uh, looking at CopSub's YouTube channel, uh, you've gone and shown a bunch of different things uh, for the technologies that you've developed. From, you know, engine tests to your how you stream your telemetry back to a radio tower and eventually to YouTube. And one thing I noticed was that some of these things look, you know, it looks like a ton of work has to go in before you even start making hardware and then you go and develop the hardware and you get this really complex thing out of it. And other things you you know, find a few parts that work on eBay and by clever thinking you can make a very cheap yet still very effective product. And you you also mentioned that you design as you go. Um, So my question for you is how has the engineering process or the engineering skills evolved over time, as you build more rockets, um, and as the team gets more experience? I would say
1: that um, at some points, we have we have learned that that uh, off the shelf stuff is good enough, and at at some other points our 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 confidence has taken a few hits uh, along the way, uh, because uh, to begin with we were quite confident that well a big rocket engine I mean how difficult can it be? Uh, it's just a, it's just a small rocket engine just a little, little bit bigger right uh but uh, but in terms of engine engines we have really learned the hard way that, that that is not something that you just do i mean it it takes a lot of practice and a lot of thinking and a lot of a lot of um, care before you get that uh, right so i mean we we built some big engines we we built some we built some, some really big hybrid engines uh, for the for the first rockets the heat Heat 1x um uh, and learned that well hybrids is a promising uh, or it's um it, it sounds promising it looks promising it looks very easy but but in practice it is very difficult to make it work uh, as as one of one of the guys uh, with us who who works with the rocketry at his as his day job really he said well if hybrids were the solution for everything and it is it and, and, and hybrids were so easy to build everyone would be using them there's a reason why everyone is not using them because they are in principle easy to build and to make work but to make them work reliably and stable is extremely difficult uh then we moved on to uh, to to bi-liquids because bi give you all the things that you don't get out of a, of a hybrid you can you can uh, you can throttle it you can control it you can you can do a lot of things, uh, I mean, in, in terms of, 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 of handling the thrust and, and what whatnot in the engine. But then you just have another set of problems, right? So, in, in rocketry, it's not, it's not about – there's no free lunch. There's no easy way. But you make a choice, and then you get a set of problems. So, basically, you're not really choosing which way you want to go. You're choosing the set of problems you want to solve. Um, we moved on to big, to big, uh, bi-liquids thinking, oh yeah, but how hard can that be? That turned out also to be quite uh, difficult. I mean, uh, the TM65, for example, didn't perform very well and, and it died in the third test. And then we, we, we tried to fix the problems on, on that one and were cocky and confident enough to, to think that we could put that on the HEAT-2X rocket and, uh, and just, uh, And just fire it and if you have seen the video we have on youtube that didn't go very well i mean uh, the the cooling channel in the in the in the engine burst and then we just uh, burnt 600 liters of fuel in a few seconds and everything died there Uh, so after that after that big fire we had back in 2014 the team i think that was where we realized that okay we need a more structured approach to this to this we need We need to take this one step at a time. Uh, And that was why we said, okay, now we we designed the the BPM5 engine, small, controllable, and uh, an engine that is shown to be extremely reliable. Uh, And and then we are focusing on the control mechanisms, the software, the the computers. We need to test this engine a cillion times so that we can verify all all our equipment, and, and, and we can verify all the procedures that goes into testing a, a rocket engine, uh, and and we have done that enough times so that we are we are confident enough that that now we we are able to build a bigger engine, but I'm not saying that that engine will work in the first one. I mean we will probably, I almost say hopefully, have some uh, some failures and explosions uh, before we before we get that right.
0: How big is your team?
1: Fifty, around fifty. It it differs a little bit. It depends on how you how you uh, how you calculate. We have we have a lot of team members that that are not there every day that we just use, you know, on occasion. So I would say, on a day-to-day basis, we are about twenty-five to thirty people.
0: Um, do you have an example of an engineering solution that you were able to implement um, that traditional engineering organizations may not have decided to do or been able to do?
1: I think that everyone would have been able. Uh, I'm not sure that some of the solutions we have come up with was something that they would <laughs> would have liked to do. Um, I several. I mean, um, we used at one point to control or to synchronize the two uh, the two valves uh, on the on the Heat Two X rocket. Uh, we used a uh, a brake cable from a, from a Fiat. Uh, not because it was a, a a brake cable for a Fiat or for any car, for that matter, but it was just a a piece of of of, uh, of a cable with the right uh, rigidity and the right length and everything. It just it just fit the purpose, and that is pretty much how we 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 operate. We we don't look at if anything is is. Uh, Space rated or rocket grade or, or, or designed for, for 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 something specific we we find something uh, industrial components, for example, they are good enough where we say, okay, this is uh, maybe not designed to work with uh, with liquid oxygen, and it is maybe not designed to be pressurized uh, at at this uh, rate for uh, for a thousand hours, but I bet that we can make it last for the 30 seconds we need it to last.
2: Yeah, so that's a really interesting attitude that, especially with some U.S. space companies, uh, they tend to go with custom, perfect solutions rather than finding something that just works and just fits. So uh, we've already talked about um, all the commercial off-the-shelf parts that your team brings into the rockets. Um, What is something, for example, that you thought you could bring off-the-shelf uh, but eventually had to rework and bring in house where you couldn't find a suitable replacement
1: i would say many of the components we use for for the cry, for cryogenic stuff for example measuring the uh, the the level of liquid oxygen in the uh, in the uh, lux tank we have tried uh, many different ways we have tried weighing the tank we have tried measuring by by um by uh, using uh, um, what are they called thermocouples, for example, we built this uh, very very sophisticated porcupine-looking thingy with uh, thermocouples, where we just measured a lot of points down the tank to to to, to check the level, and in the end uh, we we bought a uh, industrial capacitive measuring device designed for for um, for measuring liquid oxygen or liquid nitrogen in a tank and then we it, it was way too it, it worked fantastic but it was way too bulky uh but looking at that and and looking at how how the principles uh, of of measuring uh, then we uh, we we built our own version of that and designed our own electronic because uh, we needed a lightweight, lightweight version. So now uh, we have, uh, we have uh, capacitive measuring sticks in, uh, in the live uh, rocket that are very light and, and, and very reliable and, and uh, very easy to work with.
2: It's interesting that you brought up uh, weighing the rocket to measure the fuel load. Uh, we were at Kennedy Space Center uh, earlier last year and the original redstone pads with the redstone missile actually had an integrated scale system, and that was how they controlled the filler rate and the fueling status of the rocket. Was we load it? We know the dry mass of the rocket. We fill it up with liquid alcohol, yeah. and that's a known value. And then by looking at the scale, we measure how much liquid oxygen is actually in there
1: yeah yeah i mean we did the we did the same we did the same and and in the test stand it worked reasonably well the problem being that uh once you start putting in uh the liquid oxygen every every everything freezes up right uh and all the um the connecting pipes and and uh and the flexible hoses and all they get stiff and they re- and the metal retracts and that affects the the scale the scale of the of the weight so we tried uh, first we just placed the tanks on weights and we had a lot of issues with that because it it didn't measure anything right and then we we suspended the uh the tanks under two wires so that they were hanging but that introduced some other interesting things but then when when the indian was running everything was just bobbing around uh in the test stand that was that didn't work uh, very well uh and then we we ended up with this but i mean they probably did that back in the 50s because they didn't have the electronics to build a capacitive measuring device because you need a uh, you need need a small computer that that calculates uh, the values all the time and you can do that we can do that today that's also why a lot of the stuff that we do now or, well I would say the entire program program that we run we wouldn't have been able to do that 20 years ago because 20 years ago you couldn't buy a 100 megahertz uh computer off of eBay for $5 that can basically has enough uh, has enough computing power to 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 control an entire rocket or whatever
2: yeah it's definitely exciting to see how things have changed even in a very brief time, and especially compared to the early days of rocketry, but it's interesting to see the same problems that the early rocket pioneers faced. Every team that goes through this has to face those eventually.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. We do, and I mean, but but that, the the basics hasn't changed. Uh, a rocket engine is still a rocket, rocket engine, and controlling that beast is the it's the same problems. Um, there are only so many different ways you can you can you can do that. But personally, I believe more in the approach uh, that that you saw back in the fifties with uh, with the Russian uh, with the Russian rockets, for example, where they tend to build something that were less effective, but uh, but more rocket, um, probably also a lot heavier but they focused more on 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 building something that was easy to manufacture than to to get those last 20% of performance out of it
2: yeah definitely a, a good philosophy to chase when you know your manufacturing capabilities and and uh, budget are constrained right when you're not a national space program that can spend billions of dollars a year on development
1: yeah precisely because we don't i mean we have the same production facilities that you have in a normal metal workshop as a, we have uh, we have um, mills and lathes and welding equipment and 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 if we need something sophisticated then we need to invent it and build it ourselves coming back to your question before that 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 yes sometimes when we are building something, we can just buy three pieces of of hardware from eBay and and, and then throw something together. But sometimes we need to build something very special. And then we need to build the tool, to build the tool, to build the mold, and then build the component. And I mean, but that's how how it is. And that's also part of the fun.
2: So uh, kind of diving into uh, things you're specifically in charge of as communications lead, can you give us a kind of high level rundown of the communication system that you guys are flying on your rockets
1: Uh, yes i can uh, if you're uh, we're talking about telemetry for example Uh, so basically we are also here uh, we are using as much of the shelf as we can we have that little uh, extra spice on this mission that we are launching from sea which means that our launch platform and our mission control cannot be physically connected. And we cannot be physically connected with anything ashore either. So everything needs to be done by radio. So what we do is uh, when we are out at sea and the mission control ship is about one to two kilometers away from the launch platform, everything is connected by actually an ordinary Wi-Fi network. We have just designed antennas with uh, with uh, rotating devices so that no matter how the ships are moving, uh, th- they have two antennas that are always pointing at each other. So all the computer systems on the launch platform and all the computer systems on the uh, mission control are talking over a normal Wi-Fi connection. And then we have on the top of the mission control, we also have um, the the... the high most antenna on the on the ship. It's uh, almost 15 meters up in a very thin mast. We also have a rotating antenna that is all the time pointing towards the island of Bornholm, uh, which is the nearest island where we are from, where we are launching. And in on the island on shore, in in a very high uh, tower, uh, old uh, uh, old uh, lighthouse, we have then a disc antenna that also is synchronized and pointing towards the ship at sea. And that way we also have a, we can actually establish about 50 megabits at a 30 kilometer distance. And that's how we, we send in our, our signals and our, and our video, our live feed. And then from the mission control to the rocket, we are using uh, 2.4 gigahertz for the, uh, for the uplink and uh, 70 centimeters UHF for the downlink of telemetry.
2: So, using these radio networks, what kind of data do you get back from the rocket when it's sitting on the pad and during flight?
1: We get uh, everything the rocket is doing. Uh, we have uh, some of the systems in the rocket are sampling at very high frequency in the rocket itself, but we don't have enough bandwidth to uh, to get all these uh, data samples. So, so from every system, we we get uh, about a hundred a uh, hundred hertz of uh, of data packets. From each, so 100, 100 packets every second, um, but uh, but some of the systems are sampling at a much higher rate, and they are storing that in in memory on on the uh, the the specific computers in the rocket, so that we get we get a, a basic telemetry down, but then when we salvage the the rocket, then we can can dig out the um, the more detailed uh, telemetry
2: what goes into that data storage do you have some kind of black box is it traditional solid state memory chips or something more exotic
1: uh we we are keeping costs down here uh so what we have done is we have designed our our own computer that we actually call CSduino uh not because it is uh, it is uh, uh, Arduino uh, in in any way but we have based it on the um on the same CPU that is used in the Arduino Duo, uh board, which is, a, well, some years old now, right? Uh, but it's an Atmel CPU. It's cheap. It's available. It is, has been tested. And I mean, it's a CPU that you would use in what? A, a printer or a copier or whatever, uh, but it has plenty of power. And then what we do is we use that standardized CPU board for all the computers in the rocket, so that we are using the same uh, the same interface to program it, and and also it has been tested a lot because we use it everywhere, and we simply has we have uh, standard uh, solid state um, uh, EEPROM chips and some uh, some uh, some uh, some uh, some, uh, some SSD memory.
2: And that system on prior missions, you've been able to recover all
1: the data back successfully? Uh, yeah. The, for the computers we have found, <laughs> we also lost a few, but, but the computers we have found, we have had a uh, total success in retrieving data from them.
2: So uh, can you kind of give us a rundown of, leading up to launch, uh, what kind of control does mission control have of the rocket, either remotely or directly, and what kind of... Uh, procedures is the
1: rocket doing autonomously um, it is doing most of its procedures autonomously actually um, mission control we have of course control of every every single valve and system in the rocket so so uh, we can when we are uh, when we are uh, when we have the rocket on the platform when we are loading it uh, and when we are pressurizing it, we are controlling all the valves uh, some of them uh, automatically in sequence and some of them uh, manually so that the uh, that the uh, the flight the, the 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 flight controller and the pad leader and our uh, our data um officer they they have total control over the rocket controlling everything according to a set of of uh, specific procedures and then, when we have uh, T minus uh, 30 seconds, control is given over to the rocket itself. And then the rocket uh, is just performing a, ch- a checklist from uh, pressurization. When when we have achieved pressurization, then the, the rocket takes over and then it... Uh, it Counts down, ignites the engine, and and then uh, flies according to a checklist. On the next two, uh, we have added a small feature so that the rocket, uh, in some way, is actually also controlling the the pressurization sequence. Um, it's not entirely true because uh, because what it does is is actually just that that the DPR system, the dynamic pressure regulating system. Is, is in charge of pressurizing the tanks uh, and that is uh, designed that way because we we fill the tanks almost so they are I mean they are maybe 90 percent full. So it doesn't make sense to have an external pressurization because the, the, the initial pressurization that we need to do the amount of gas is very small so it makes much more sense that it is the onboard DPR system that pressurizes the tanks. But that is still done before control, final control, is given to the rocket itself.
0: So um, one thing that we kind of glossed over, and that's an unusual feature of Copenhagen suborbitals is your sea launch. You're launching from the Baltic Sea. Um, So what drew uh, COPSUB to this approach for launching at sea rather than uh, a land-based
1: launch pad? Necessity. Primarily, um, we don't have that many uh, remote deserts in uh, in northern Europe. Uh, we have a launch site up in the northern part of Sweden, uh, but that is uh, controlled by the Swedish government, and it's uh, it's a very nice area. Uh, there's a lot of lakes, trees, and uh, loads of mosquitoes, uh, but it's very hard to to get there, and it's it's also expensive um and then the after doing a lot of research we found out that that the the easiest way for us was to uh, to use the area in the baltic because it is international waters and it is also a military shooting area so that we can coordinate with the authorities authorities in such, such a way that that the airspace can be closed down so that we can launch from there
0: so, um, are there any other specific advantages um, and challenges for launching at sea that you haven't mentioned already?
1: I, I would say that the the advantage is, of course, that that you can you well you could uh, you could move your platform anywhere, launch from from wherever you want, but but otherwise, I would say that th- there are mainly disadvantages in launching from sea. We would much rather uh have a remote desert somewhere where we could set up a, a shed and a few campers and uh and 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 then walk around the rocket and do do everything nicely nice and quiet and have some cables and but but since we don't have that we we have had to come up with this solution
0: do you run into issues um with salt water corroding your parts before you take off or does it not have enough time to act
1: no, no, it doesn't have enough time. Uh, and I mean, the boats, uh, they, requ- it's, it, 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 they require just normal maintenance, what you would expect from uh, from boats in salt water. So no, I, I I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say that. Of course, we need to be very careful to protect the rocket from, from splashes of water. But apart from that, no. And um,
0: small launchers and small launch companies, um, have been coming in the news, and we've seen them using Kodiak, Alaska, um, all the way in New Zealand. Um, so those are different areas uh, for launch sites that are that small launchers are using. Does Copenhagen Suborbitals have any plans of reevaluating your launch site for one of those places that might be better?
1: No not currently. Uh if something comes up, we are willing to look at it, but but currently we are not. We're not looking at any other launch sites because we have built the infrastructure now.
0: You're all volunteers working together like you said in in sort mm-hmm. of a workshop and then you go and launch a rocket. What are some of the steps you have to take in getting permission to do a
1: launch? It is a very delicate process, uh involving details that I cannot reveal. <laughs> uh but but i can say that that it is done uh, in very close uh, collaboration with the authorities so that we make sure that everything is 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 done the right way so that we make sure that that everyone in in all the uh, the countries surrounding the baltic knows what's going on and what we are doing and we make sure that the, air, the 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 area at sea is is also closed down and everything is communicated through the proper channels uh, and we also have very close uh, collaboration with the um, with the um, aeronautic uh, authorities that are in charge of controlling the uh, the commercial airspace but it takes a lot of work to make it to make it work
2: yeah it seems like a, a massive undertaking here at specs uh, the permitting and licensing even for just uh weather balloons uh is quite extensive. Yeah. So when you switch to actual explosives and propulsive vehicles, I'm sure the uh level of paperwork increases exponentially.
1: It is not easy, I can tell you.
2: So uh going back to Copenhagen's orbitals, uh, your team is all volunteer space program yeah. traditionally, space exploration has been the realm of government agencies recently we've seen private commercial companies making strides in space but Copenhagen worlds is even more has has an even more unique approach. Do you think these kinds of community driven engineering projects will become more popular, whether in space industry or? even other industries or other projects
1: I hope so I mean uh, we have seen it with the software community right uh, just look at the the linux platform and there are so many other platforms uh, the arduino uh, framework is also a good example of of community driven driven uh, development and and design so i I hope so um one thing uh, regarding spaceflight I see as as an issue or something that we also experience as issue is that it is very difficult for us to uh, to work uh, across borders uh one thing is because doing hardware stuff well we need people to be at the site to do to do the work uh but also because i mean um building rockets is something that is very very heavily regulated. Uh especially in the in the US but 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 everywhere in the world. So 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 working with rocket technology across borders is just something that is not really you cannot really do it. Uh we we can't uh we can't have a a, a software engineer sitting in in the uh, in the U.S., uh, designing a guidance system that we will be using uh, to launch a rocket in Europe—it's—it's it's simply not possible, or at least not without uh, even more paperwork. Um, so, so, so in terms of what we are doing, that is a major obstacle in uh, f- for distributing or or, or 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 doing community work. Uh, but I mean, in other areas. I really, really hope that this is something that will just, uh, that will just, uh, yeah, explode and 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 become become very big because there's so much more you can do when you find like-minded people all over the world, and there are so many more like-minded people if you're not if you're not just looking in your own backyard, but but is able to, to look all over the world, right? Yeah,
2: here in the U.S. in the past recent years we've had. The explosion of the the maker community and maker spaces which sound a lot like your team's workshop which has the expensive mills and lathes and other machinery where people can go and kind of congregate and build things and I wonder whether in five ten years maker spaces here might uh, decide to start small scale rocketry Uh, because the United States does have some amateur rocketry uh competitions and a small industry there.
1: Yeah, and I and I know there's a lot of uh, of groups in the US and 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 f- since we started this, uh I mean there have become there, there there has popped up a lot more amateur rocket groups all over the world, uh, which I think is is uh, is fantastic. Uh, also, uh, sometimes you know when you have a very dark day and you're sitting and thinking oh this is never gonna work and we are never gonna we are finished and we don't have any money and uh, then all of a sudden an email pops up on our mailing list from somewhere from from someone in australia saying hey guys uh, i just wanted to tell you that that i've been considering uh, applying for university and now i have decided to 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 sign up and and study aeronautics or whatever and and this is because you inspired me to do so um and 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 when you get those and we do get those uh, from time to time then everything is just like okay it doesn't matter it doesn't matter if 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 this is difficult and it doesn't matter if we think we can do it because because being able to inspire people that way is is fantastic uh, and that is a reward in itself right so that is also a, a very big part of why we are doing what we are doing because we want to inspire people. yeah uh,
2: what's the kind of age range of people who are involved in COPSUB? Do you have a lot of young engineers who get inspired by the project who want to get involved?
1: We have all different all, all kinds different kinds of people i mean our our current uh, chairman of of the um of the organization he is actually in his day job a kindergarten teacher. Then we have uh, engineers. Uh, we have young engineers. We have uh, experienced engineers. We have uh, retired engineers. We have uh, a lot of uh, software guys. Uh, so it's 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 all it's a very very mixed group of people. And and recently we are also getting a we have also yeah we have we are, we are getting uh, more females. Uh, so I think now we have uh, about five female team members, which is fantastic because it brings kind of a spirit to the project other than being us just old grumpy guys.
2: Uh, so, again, Cops has been here around for about 10 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, how is the program funded? I know you guys have a support group yeah. uh, that's open for anyone. Uh, is that your primary source of revenue of how you support the program and get
1: these off-the-shelf parts and other things it is uh, that the support the support group is our main uh, our main source of uh, of uh, funding uh, we has as of now just about 500 members of our support group contributing uh, between anywhere between uh, 10 and, and 50 dollars a month and that is extremely important because that is those contributions is what we use to pay rent to Pay for insurance, to pay uh, uh, utilities, and and to buy all the the little things we need in the workshop. Um, then we have a lot of uh, of company sponsors. Usually they are not donating uh, money, but they are either donating equipment or or um, giving us a very good discounts on on their products so that we can make make our money uh, last longer but but uh one thing that we are working very hard on now is is to grow our supporter base because we need uh we need a lot more uh to to be able to uh to con to continue and finish the the speaker project within within a reasonable time frame we we need to uh, to double our supporter base not because we need more money for for rent or anything because we have that covered but simply because the materials uh, we need to buy is getting is getting more expensive because they're getting big, bigger right um and also we are always looking for for uh, for sponsors uh, both companies that that want to uh, to support us financially but also uh, who have products that they can uh, that they can donate
2: so uh the new space industry is exploding and in 2017 almost 1 billion dollars were invested in new space startups whether rocket companies or satellite companies Are there technologies or techniques pioneered in new space that your organization has taken advantage of?
1: Not to my knowledge. Uh not not uh, not other than um and the uh, the small uh, computers and and gyros and and gpss and whatnot uh, but that is something that is primarily have been developed for for smartphones right um no i wouldn't say i wouldn't say we we have a very old school approach to what we do we we don't we're not trying to to build lightweight carbon fiber uh, high performance rockets uh, like a lot of the new space companies are doing we are we are looking the other way trying to to build something rugged and simple and maybe just a little bit heavy uh, because we think that that is a, a easier and cheaper way towards uh, towards uh, reaching our goal and also remember that what we are working on is a suborbital mission which uh, which um, Means that we don't need to build our rocket as light as as uh, some of the small satellite launches, um, and we don't need to develop a second stage, for example. But I mean, you never know. You never know. Let's say let's say that we accomplish uh, this mission. Maybe we maybe we will aim aim uh, higher at a later point. I have I have no idea. But as it is now, we have uh, enough challenges just to to make the suborbital mission. But it is also diff in a, in in the in the sense that that we don't get any venture capital we don't get any investments from anyone because because we don't have a financial approach to this we if if people invest money in us they do it because they believe in the project and and because they they can can see the value in in the um in the inspirational part of this uh because we don't have any pay- payback plan uh we don't have we 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 don't have any any uh, opt out we don't have any uh, exit strategy um and and investors tend to want to have their money back at some point right
0: so i'm i'm very interested in learning more about your hardware and designs that you've developed um where could i or yeah. our listeners go to learn about the technical
1: specifications for your rocket and systems? We publish as much as we can on the website. Uh, Again, unfortunately, rockets and rocket components, components is something that is very highly regulated. So there are a lot of things, even though we would like to have this be a total open source project, there are a lot of things we cannot Open source that we cannot show. We can only show designs to a certain degree. Uh, so the best uh, the pl- best place to look is to to look at our YouTube videos. We do a lot of uh, walkthroughs there where you can see how different uh, different items are built. But uh, but we cannot publish uh, source code or uh, or blueprints or anything.
0: What's the subsystem that's um, currently under the most
1: development or most exciting development right now? In the most exciting development phase right now, yeah, um, I would say that right now, as of today, it is probably the new uh, the new computer system that we are working on, the new guidance system that we are working on now. Uh, that is very interesting, but in terms of tech, uh, complexity. Uh, Right now, I would say it's actually our video streaming software. That is open source, and you can find that uh, on GitHub. It's called uh, Snowmix, and that is a completely uh, custom-built, from scratch, uh, distributed video uh, mixing service. What we do is, we we have uh, cameras on our platform, 30 kilometers out to sea, and all those cameras and all the mixing and everything is controlled in an old camper that is placed outside our workshop in Copenhagen remotely. And it's uh, our one of our engineers, Peter, who has written that software from scratch. And that is open source and you can download it on, on GitHub and, and take a look at it. And that is that is actually one area where people can contribute because it's just video broadcasting, right?
0: And when is your next launch or when what... Around what time frame, and which rocket are you planning to launch next?
1: The next rocket we are launching will be the Nexo 2. Uh, it is in the final preparation stage right now. Uh, we have it uh, lying around, and I was actually there this afternoon in the workshop where the guys were were doing some test uh, pressurizations uh, and looking for some leaks in the in the high-pressure system. But the rocket is, is finished, uh, and right now we are just uh, waiting for uh, for the completion of the authorization process with the uh, authorities so that we can get a launch uh, a launch a slot and we are hoping for a um for a slot in in early uh, early July but we will publish that as soon as we have it, it the dates might differ a lot because there's a lot of uh, a lot of uh, things that needs to be taken into account
0: excellent this has been a lot of fun do you have any more questions dj
1: oh well i
2: think we can talk about rockets and rocket engineering all day Uh, something i'm really passionate about and you definitely seem to you know by building a rocket definitely on top of things but i just want to say thank you for taking your time out to speak with us uh up is a really exciting project and uh, following your YouTube videos and uh, your launches is always exciting.
1: Thank you. Uh, I'm really glad and I also hope that all the, the people listening to this uh, out here will will uh, take a, a shot at uh, our website, uh, take a look at it and, and uh, especially our, our YouTube channel. Uh, it's growing a lot uh, these days and you can learn a lot from that. And also, please consider supporting us that would really mean a lot to us if, if all the people from from all over the world listening to this would uh, would consider being uh, supporters
0: awesome we're speaking with mads wilson who is the communications lead for copenhagen suborbitals thanks a lot mads thank you thanks for listening you can learn more about copenhagen suborbitals at copenhagensuborbitals.com also search for copenhagen suborbitals on youtube They go into great detail about a lot of the cool stuff they're working on, including their scratch-built rocket engines. You can also check out some of those videos on our blog, blog blog.spexcast.com. We post articles with additional resources to all our new episodes and articles going into science and technology of space exploration every week. For more Spexcast, You can download past episodes on iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, or anywhere else you find podcasts. And to listen to all our future episodes, make sure you subscribe. We'd love to know what you think of the show. Write a review for us wherever you get your podcasts, or get in touch on Twitter at ritspecs or by email at specscast at gmail.com. Our music is by Nelson Scott. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time with more discussions on science and technology of
1: space exploration.
2: Thanks.